Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Welcome everyone to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm really, really excited today because I have Monica Crowfoot on the line with me today. And she is someone that I have followed for, I think a year now. Has it been a year? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's been a year and I have, I've loved her personality. She has a way of explaining really difficult topics in a way that is it makes it really easy for you to look at yourself and to see parts of the religious trauma and the religious harm that we have inside of ourselves and the way we perpetuate it on others. And she has helped me learn so much about indigenous cultures. She's helped me learn so much about celebrating my own cultures and the places that I come from and like really having that cultural pride. I think so many of us that are in the United States, especially those of us who present as white or have European heritage, um, we can sometimes feel lost like little orphans. We can feel like mutts going back and studying those things can really give us a sense of roots and a a sense of where we come from. And so today, Monica is actually going to talk about her heritage, her experience with high demand religion in the Mormon church. And her pathway towards healing and what has given her hope and enlightenment. And so I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Monica and let her introduce herself to you because she's amazing. Hi, thank you so much, Terry. And thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to talk to you too. I feel like we're already friends because, uh-huh. you know, we've been online friends for a while. <laughs> so yeah. it's fun to actually talk with you today. Um, yeah, so I'm Monica Crowfoot. I am Navajo. I grew up on the Navajo reservation, um, but I didn't grow up traditionally, which I feel brings about a bit of um, otherness in itself because I didn't feel like I fit in with everybody else around me um, because I grew up Mormon. So my parents are both converts. My mom went on the Indian placement program when she was eight years old and her whole family, she has seven brothers and one sister. So they all went on the placement program um, at different times. And my dad, he went to boarding school, but he didn't go, he didn't convert until I think he was in college. And then he went on a, a mission when he was 26. Yeah. So, um, they got married in the Salt Lake temple and had children and I was the eldest and we grew up on the reservation. And it was really interesting because we didn't grow up learning Navajo. We didn't grow up, um, going to ceremonies. We didn't grow up, you know, learning dances or singing the songs. 
so many things I feel like we missed out on um, concerning our culture because my parents constantly reiterated that we were, we were Mormons, we were Latter-day Saints. And that was the culture that came um, first and foremost um, that, you know, because of the wickedness, the wicked traditions of our forefathers, meaning, you know, cultural traditions, um, indigenous traditions, you know, across the board, that was wicked. That was sought, like that was seen as wicked. Um, so we didn't partake in any of those things. And, you know, we were, we weren't Navajo, we were children of God. And so that was one thing I heard growing up in conference meetings, in regular church meetings, that we have to choose between being Navajo and being Mormon. And we need to choose to be Mormon. We need to choose to be Latter-day Saints. That was more important than being Navajo. So that's the idea I grew up with in my head. And, you know, I do remember the scripture saying that we would turn white and delightsome. And I do remember, you know, as a young girl, my mom and I would, you know, rub lemon juice on our arms and stay out of the sun so we could be as light as possible. And it was, it was a weird thing growing up, you know, on the reservation as this little res girl um, with the hopes that I would, you know, turn white at some point. Um, that was my goal. And, you know, looking back, it's, it's really fascinating. Those ideas that get stuck inside your head. Yeah. Well, and especially because here you are, you're on the reservation, you're surrounded by other people who are Navajo. You're seeing them do all of these ceremonies and have their coming, you know, the coming of age and the the powwows and all of the things that bring them together as a community. And technically you're part of that community and yet you feel so outside. And my guess is in Mormonism, you're part of that community, but you also technically feel outside because you're not white. Is that, is that accurate or? Uh, mostly accurate uh, because I did our ward was on the Navajo reservation. Okay. So it was 90% Navajo. Okay. Um, or at least mixed uh, native, you know, Hopi or Zuni, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was 90% brown people and um, a couple white families. Like my best friend growing up, she was white. And um, she was like maybe one of five white kids in our school. So it wasn't super outside because she was my only white friend at church. Everybody else was native mm -hmm. Navajo. Um, so I felt like it was this very um, exclusive pocket of friends and community. Mm -hmm. I felt like it, it, it was this kind of like, country club feel of like, we are, you know, the chosen ones on the reservation. Mm -hmm. um, we have Christianity, we have, you know, Mormonism, we have the truth, we're part of the true church. 
So I felt like there was almost this elitist feel looking back. Mm-hmm. I didn't see that, you know, growing up, but looking back, I definitely, I can definitely see some superiority where I did think at times as a young child, I feel so bad for everybody else because they're not going to go to the celestial kingdom. Like I'm going to go to the celestial kingdom. And so it was almost kind of a, you know, a fair sacrifice to make of being othered in your own community of fellow Navajos, because in the eternities, I would be saved. So the, the pain that you were having to deal with at the moment made sense because long-term it would bring you benefits and it was going to be better for you. Yeah. And you're also taught that, well, it's bad anyway, your culture Mm -hmm. is bad. You know, it, the goal was assimilation. I didn't know the word assimilation at the time, but looking back now, yeah, the goal was assimilation. So the, the more Euro American I could be the better. Yeah. How has that affected you long-term? If you want to go ahead and go there, what has that been like for you and your kids? So my husband is very into, um, you know, historical research. He loves researching history. He loves researching native history, especially. And so I never did, like I didn't, I mean, growing up on, on the reservation, we did learn you know, some parts of Navajo history, but it wasn't ever in depth and it wasn't across the board of, you know, all the tribes in, on, you know, in the North American continent or even in Central America, South America, it, it didn't really matter to me because, you know, I was a child of God and that's all that mattered. Um, so being married to him really changed my mindset because he would open my eyes to things that I hadn't even thought of. And he was also, he was also a member. Um, He had gone on a mission and, and we had gotten married in the temple. So it wasn't until I got married that I started looking back and reflecting on my own history, on my own heritage and on my own cult, like my own culture. And his parents are, descended from chief crowfoot. So they do have a, a sense of pride in that, but I also feel like their Mormonism takes precedence over like just generally. And I, I, I hate to say it like this, but sometimes you'll take just the good pieces of your history. Yeah. You know, because we're we've taught to hero worship in Mormonism. And so we tend to do that outside of it where it concerns your own heritage, you know. So so native history, you know, in general, it was like, oh, Chief Manuelito is a hero and Sitting Bull is a hero, but like it's that sense of I I had a an acquaintance uh, who had said, "Oh, I'm I'm native. I am descended, you know, from Pocahontas." And it's so funny how many times I hear that non-natives, you know, claim Pocahontas as their <laughs> as their ancestor. 
it can't ever be just some regular native. It has to be a chief or a princess, which we never had. We never had princesses. We never had like this sense of European royalty. Um, so it's funny how we as natives, and this isn't generally speaking, but a handful, I guess, if you're Mormon and you're native, there's this a, a very strange reconciling that happens because you're trying to mesh the two. You're trying to reconcile the fact that you're cursed and that this history of natives isn't really your history, but take the good hero worshiping parts. Those parts are really cool. Take Pocahontas, take Sitting Bull, take, take Geronimo, um, and then leave out all the, you know, the savage parts of it, you know, and instead take on Nephi and Moroni and Ammon or Samuel the Lamanite, the one righteous Lamanite in all of the Book of Mormon, you know, because you don't hero worship Laman, you don't hero worship Lemuel because they were cursed brown and dark and wicked. So it's not like this across the board. And I do know that there are some families who seem to have a good balance of their history and appreciation for their culture, but also have an appreciation for Mormonism and somehow they're able to mesh it into their lives. But I think for myself and, and a lot of other native native people in the church, indigenous people in the church, I think there is a sense of cultural erasure, whether they want to admit it or not. Mm -hmm. You have to, if you're going to take on the Book of Mormon as your history, then you're going to have to let go of your actual history. But also, you know, because it, it, it does, it's not just a religious, a religious problem of cultural erasure. It's a societal problem of cultural erasure. Because on one hand, your religion is telling you, no, you know, this, that's not your like important history. The book of Mormon is, a, is the important history of your people. And on the society platform, you're told that, you know, you're taught in school that the indigenous people died. They were wiped out. They were weak. They, they were the bad guys. They were the ones, you know, attacking these poor settlers they were dirty and they were disease ridden when really like those diseases were put upon us you know we were given blankets with smallpox we were given infested items um our water was poisoned our cattle was you know wiped out our people were wiped out and slaughtered so i mean you know growing up as a native person it's a very shameful history because you're only taught about the bad parts. You're only taught about how you were defeated. But when you really look into it, when you really study your people, I, I was extremely humbled, I guess, but just learning about my Navajo history, learning that chief Manuelito didn't just surrender um, to the settlers right away. 
you know, he fought and he fought for as long as possible to, to protect his land, to protect his whole people and other leaders joined him to fight. It wasn't just an automatic surrender. And it wasn't until he saw that, you know what, we're overpowered. And in order to save as many people as we can, we're going to have to enter into a treaty. And so he did the best he could with what he had. And so I just gained this huge respect for him, for Chief Largo, for, I can't remember the other names now, but like this whole group of, of Navajo men and Hopi men and Zuni men, like they all came together to try to fight for their people. I was just blown away by that respect and like that I had for them and the love that I had for them just completely multiplied. You know, these people fought for us to keep us from being slaughtered, to keep, you know, like a whole genocide was happening across, across the continent and for them to be in the middle of it and Mm -hmm. fighting for our freedom and fighting for our lives just really brought me, I guess, to my knees, you know, like I had never felt that way about Nephi. I had never felt that way about Moroni or Ammon, Ammon missionary to the Lamanites who, who chopped off Lamanite arms, you know, and we're supposed to, we're supposed to respect him for that, you know, Um, because Lamanites are wicked. So it it took a while to finally find that pride of being Navajo, of being proud of where I came from, of being proud of my heritage, because for so long, Mormonism was my heritage. You can't be Navajo and Mormon at the same time. And a lot of other people, a lot of other natives will say, no, they never said that. That's not what I grew up with. And that's fine. Not everybody grew up with that. But I know in my area, in my stake, I heard those. I heard those words. And those are the words that stuck with me. Yeah. And that gets to be valid. All of us have our different experiences because of the different leadership in the different areas. It absolutely does change the way that we Think about the gospel, the scriptures, ourselves, our heritage, all of that. And it it gets to be valid just because somebody else didn't hear that or they had leadership that was better able to mitigate the harm that is often in Mormon doctrine about having brown skin or black skin or, you know, just all, all of those, you know, different things that we, I think many, many people struggle with that come from different racial backgrounds than the white European people. I think that the Book of Mormon was really written for to celebrate and to, to deify. Um, I, th- I think that many people get those messages regardless of where they live. And just for my listeners, I have a lot of listeners who are fundamentalist Christian or Jehovah's Witness. I just want to explain really quick, like, Do you want to tell them like what the Book of Mormon, like what the Book of Mormon telling does to indigenous people and their their story here on the American continent? 
Oh yeah. So basically, you know, in a nutshell, Lehi came from Jerusalem in a boat with his family. And that's where we're descended. That's where the native American people, North American native people, uh, Central America, South America, all the indigenous people are said to have been descended from him. I mean, there are some other, there were some other inhabitants from the Book of Mormon, but I I don't want to get into that. But um, so basically two of his sons were cursed, Laman and Lemuel. So Native Americans today are the descendants of Laman and Lemuel. We're cursed with dark brown skin uh, because of their wickedness. And I think I didn't realize the huge implications it would have being told that this was my history, being told that the Book of Mormon was my real history. I feel like I'm still at 40 healing from that, from the religious trauma that that brought on. And I think I was in denial for so long because I thought I had a sense of self, but I really didn't um, until I really turned my heart towards my people. To be told that you're cursed, to be told that you're wicked, to be told that you'll turn white, your skin will turn white if you become righteous. And yes, they've, you know, erased that um, from their scriptures very conveniently now. But it was taught. It was taught when I was when I was born. The scriptures were still there that that said that I would become white and delightsome if I was righteous. I uh, I memorized scriptures in seminary that yeah. said that. Yeah. Yeah. They taught us to memorize scriptures and we memorized scriptures and those are the scriptures that were there. Even, even if they've erased them now, even if they don't teach that now, even if they say, oh, never mind, because of DNA evidence, you know, indigenous people of the Americas aren't Jewish, aren't from Jerusalem, um, but there are some out there, you know, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so, it created a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. I I learned in a very subtle way to hate my skin, to hate the color of my skin, um, because it was tied to this curse of wickedness. I hated the color of my skin when I was told I wasn't white enough when I felt first fell in love with this, this boy from Utah, uh, he was, his mom told him to find a nice white girl. Why can't you find a nice white girl? (laughs) You know? And I did, I didn't know that my uncle had gone through the same thing when he was on place on the placement program, his girlfriend's father wouldn't let him in the house because you're a Lamanite. I don't let Lamanites in my home. And actually I don't want and I don't want my daughter dating any Lamanites. So for people to say, especially other natives because I do get a lot of backlash from other native people saying other native Mormons saying, 
that's not how it is. There's no racism in the church, but everything is so very rooted into that doctrine. And it's a racist ideology that causes people to keep teaching this racism because mm-hmm. it's part of the Book of Mormon. And Can so I, go ahead. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's fine. Um, and so, you know, just seeing that it I wasn't the first to have experienced this. My uncle on the Indian placement program experienced this. And to be more aware of what I was actually experiencing, I think helped me to stop denying it because Mm -hmm. it's for so long. I remember, I remember my, uh, my brother saying that racism doesn't exist in Utah. And he went to school at BYU while I was there. Um, I had graduated and he had just started going to Utah or to BYU, I think. Um, and I, I just had to laugh because I thought, then you're not paying attention. And I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't paying attention to the subtle racism that I would experience at BYU um, or at the wards in, in our chapel. I didn't even know that people coming up to pet my hair, these little old ladies coming up to pet my hair and, and say, oh, we used to have a Lamanite child you know, when, when we were younger, almost as if that child was a, was a pet yep. you know, that they collected and kept. I didn't realize that was racism. Yeah. Well, and you had been in some ways raised your whole life to see yourself through their lens. And because you had been conditioned to see yourself through their lens, it's almost like you don't recognize the microaggressions at first for what they are because it's just normal. It's like coming from a dysfunctional family. You don't realize that that is dysfunction until you see some, you know, a healthier way to function. And it sounds like as you've been digging into Navajo culture, Zuni culture, Hopi culture that, well, and just learning more about native peoples, it's really given you a sense of pride and respect for, for where you've come from, what your identity is, and not only like your worth as a person, but like your worth as a people. And so it's not just this elitism, like, oh, just these select few Navajos that are, you know, better than everyone else that God can love. But now it's, we are an amazing people that have done incredible feats of heroism. I mean, I, I see the whole world right now um, heralding Ukraine and how fiercely they're fighting for their freedom. And we've seen that same scenario play out over and over again right here in the United States as white settlers came and attacked, you know, different tribes of native peoples who did the very same thing and stood up with that same courage and with that same ferocity had the same kind of leadership we're seeing over there. And because our history is told from a white perspective, so often we don't, we, we got that same indoctrination that you got about, you know, native people being sick and being wiped out that they just almost don't exist anymore. And it's not true. And I, I think that there is healing for all of us as we 
recognize the strength and the courage and the the beauty of all of the different cultures here and recognize the pain of the genocide and the horrors that have happened here on this continent. I don't think we heal until we listen to those who have been at the hands of the harm of the, the ones who have had to experience genocide and being expelled from their lands and, and had religion, not just Mormonism, but Christianity and Jehovah's witnesses and seventh day Adventists tell them that their identity doesn't matter. It's false. It should be discarded in favor of a European religiosity. Um, it's colonialism, it's assimilation, like you said, and it, it's meant to wipe out this sense of self, this sense of pride that the indigenous people have or should have. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. To everything you just said. Um, and I think I, I saw that most clearly, or at least started to, when we moved to Wisconsin, once we graduated from BYU, we moved to Wisconsin, but I do remember the, the different powwows we went to. There was a BYU powwow hosted every, every year. And our, and we had our two little children go to that. And, you know, we did have a very strong, loving native community there while we were in Utah outside of that community. Yeah. We did experience racism, but within that community, it was safe within our native community. It was safe, but there is something vastly different from having a, a white host, your powwow, a white space host, your powwow compared to a community, a native community hosting the powwow. They are two very different feelings. Mm -hmm. And so our, our two youngest children would dance at the BYU powwow, you know, for, I think we went to, to one or two of them. And I, I did love the community there. The other native ladies helped teach me to make moccasins, to bead, to make regalia for my kids. So that is a part I, I loved about it, but there is a, like a deep, I, I can't even describe it. Um, when we went to the powwow at, a, at Oneida and Ho-Chunk in Wisconsin, my husband had just told me that we were moving back to Arizona. So this was like five years later, you know, we five years of living in Wisconsin. He said, okay, we're moving back to Arizona. I wanted to stay in Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Um, and I had a really hard time coming to grips of moving back to Arizona, moving back to the reservation in Arizona, because for one, you know, my brother died and, that was something I was constantly trying to get away from. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it, it wasn't something I wanted to return back to. But when we attended this, this powwow at Ho-Chunk, I saw all of the little children coming in with their regalia, with their, like, and this was like legit regalia, <laughs> you know, like, and I mean, dancers I had never really seen at BYU, like the smoke dancers and like 
I mean, it was just like this knowledge was passed down from generation to generation. And it was just, you know, just something so embedded into their person, this sense of self, a sense of heritage, a sense of cultural love and the sense of pride of who they were. I, it just, I could see it and I could feel it. And my two little babies were out there as well. And seeing them with all of their people there, you know, their Oneida side, I knew that it was the right thing to go back to Arizona because I had distanced myself so much from my Navajo side that they didn't really get a sense of that, like the traditional part of being Navajo, you know, um, the language part of being Navajo. And I remember after the powwow, I just like broke down. I was sobbing because I had like, I had, I think I realized I had hated myself for so long. I had this sense of the self-loathing because of this religious trauma. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize how harmful it was to me. So, you know, in the course of moving, moving back to the reservation um, in Arizona and spending time there with family, aunts and uncles, my kids did end up with a sense of self, with this like rooted, they felt rooted there. Granted, you know what, I didn't have the means to teach them Navajo where it's, we're still learning, you know, bits here and there. Um, but I love that they have learned about other, other tribes. I love that they feel a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood with other tribal members. I love that they feel rooted there and I love that they feel comfortable there. And while we were in New Mexico, because we moved from Arizona to New Mexico, um, while we were in New Mexico, my son came to me one night after going to the Mormon youth night. And he said, mom, this is really harmful to me. And I don't, I don't want to go anymore. I don't believe it. And I think if I had still, if I had not gone through all of these, these experiences of these layers coming off, I don't think, I don't know if I would have been the kind of safe parent for him, for him to say, mom, this hurts me, you know, because we have parents And it's this generation of you do as I say, no questions or else, you know, or else you're not part of our family anymore or else we don't talk to you or else, you know, all of these things. And no matter what religious trauma I I suffered, I, you know, motherhood was always the forefront. Like, how do I become a a better mother? Um, Religion would never have surpassed that sense of motherhood. I don't think, Um, especially after losing my brother, I I feel like people and family were the most important thing. 
So when he did come to me and he said that, you know, mom, this is harmful. I said, okay, we don't have to go anymore. As soon as I realized that it was harmful for my kids, I think I started realizing it was like almost like this little flip book of like, this was harmful. This was harmful. This was harmful. Like, and I realized I don't want my children growing up like this. I don't want my children growing up ashamed of themselves. I don't want my children wondering when they're going to turn white. I don't want my children having to talk to some kid at Sunday school saying, oh, you don't have enough faith because you're cursed, you know, brown. I don't want that environment for my children. And by the, you know, by that time, I was really the only one who had wanted to go to church anymore anyway. And I think my whole family was very relieved when we didn't have to go back. Not to say that that was the end of, you know, stress or troubles. (laughs) I, I, it's a really hard and scary thing to leave a religion that has been your foundation your whole life. Yeah. That, that you have gleaned ideologies from your entire life. And even if those ideologies were harmful, and I get so many questions saying, asking, how can you as an indigenous person have believed that? And I have to tell them I was born into this. And when you're a child and you're told, this is what happened, this is how it is, you're cursed and these are your ants, your, your real ancestors. And if you're righteous enough, you'll, you know, you'll turn white and be right, you know, go to the highest level of the celestial kingdom. It's easy to believe mm-hmm. you're because you're a child. And well, so we don't have a prefrontal cortex online. We cannot critically think. <laughs> Until like, we cannot critically think as little children. So when you're born into it and that's, what's taught to you and everyone in your family believes that, and you're going to church with other people who look like you, or even if you're not going to people with who look like you, if everyone in your congregation that you've been told, this is the most important thing, this community is where I identify first and everyone else believes that. And they're all nodding their heads in the pews when those things are being taught and they're speaking them themselves. If you question, if you happen to question at all, you think you're the problem, not that the ideology is the problem because it's just the way the human brain works, especially before our prefrontal cortexes are online. And especially when we need our parents and we need our families and we need our communities to take care of us and provide for our needs so we can survive when we're a social species. And they've done all kinds of research to see if people will think independently when everyone else is saying something different. Like they'll even show numbers and be like, what number is that? And the person will say three and they'll have all paid actors say, no, that's the number five. And the person will come back and be like, maybe it's the number five. Maybe. I mean, these are grown adults with prefrontal cortexes online. And they'll think that maybe they're the issue instead of maybe it's the doctrine that's the issue. Maybe it's the idea 
maybe everyone else really is wrong in this community. And maybe I have nothing to be ashamed of and maybe I'm worthy and maybe I get to be proud of my skin and my heritage and who I am and I don't have to feel ashamed. But you don't have that chance as a child. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, when, when the leaders of your religion are saying the people who leave are lazy learners, they don't have enough faith. They are taken over by Satan, you know, in Satan's grasp, you're taught to take them at their word because supposedly they speak to God and they are God's mouthpiece. It's, it's just so damaging on another level when you do leave and your own family members think that of you, which is why it makes it so scary. Um, when we left at first, it, it wasn't, it, it was very scary because we did lose our, our entire church community. Luckily we had some just friends outside of church who became our community and support system. They really helped us through a tough time where otherwise we would have been completely abandoned. I feel like, but you know, I thought that maybe we, we had it pretty easy. Some of our family members didn't make a fuss about it um, until last year. You know, it was three years later where I feel like things did get made into a big deal. And I think a lot of it had to do with the rhetoric of the leaders of the church, which is really sad and disappointing that they have all of this power to break families apart or keep them together. And they choose to break families apart with the words that they use on a global platform. Absolutely. So I currently don't have a relationship with my parents at the moment um, because there were some issues of them supporting a cultural decision we had made to participate in a cultural ceremony. And they were pretty just distant. They, they separated themselves from it and it was really hurtful. It didn't make any sense to me because we had other family members come aunties and uncles and, and cousins. Um, they all, and, and, you know, siblings, um, who came to support us and they were still members of the church. So it it just was really hurtful that all of these other people who, who still were members of the church came to support us, but I couldn't get that same support from the people who I needed most, you know? Um, But also again, like first and foremost, come my kids their feelings, their safety, their sense of self. And I'm willing to make any kind of sacrifice in order to maintain that. Yeah. You know, I think, I think that's one of the best things that I've come out of leaving the church with is this sense of loyalty 
to my family. Not an organization, not a religion, not doctrine, but this sense of loyalty to actual people. Mm-hmm. Say, you know, that they're, that my children's safety comes above religion. Their sense of self comes above religion. Their self-worth comes above religion. And I think that's really important because so many so many families and parents, especially who are in high demand religions, I hear stories of these families disowning their children, disowning their grandchildren. And that just breaks my heart that people could choose an organization over their own flesh and blood. And I'm just, I think that is something I am most proud of coming out of this, leaving with this sense of loyalty. Mm -hmm. Like I would do anything, you know, to create a safe space for my children. Mm -hmm. I love that they could come up to me and say, mom, this is really harmful to us. It was really harmful to me too. And they helped me realize that Mm -hmm. our parents don't want to see how harmful that was on us. And our parents, it's very hard for them to think outside of their of their image, how other people will perceive their family, because that was something really important at that, at their time of raising a family was the family's image, um, which created a, a negative stigma for therapy. My brother died. We never went to therapy. We just prayed it away. We went to church. That was the solution a child dies, I would think that you, it would be required to go to therapy because you can't handle these big feelings on your own and make sense of the world on your own. And, you know, as, as an adult now, I'm, I'm finally getting the therapy I do need. Um, but also, you know, providing my children with the option of therapy too, because I realize how important it is and how needed it is, especially with, especially if you're in a family with generational trauma, with religious trauma, those are things that you can't handle on your own. Those are things you can't pray away. Those are things you can't fast away. You know, Mm -hmm. that is not going to fix the bad communication. That is not something that is going to fix fix the dysfunction that goes on in these families. That's a, that's not something that's going to fix toxic behaviors. So that's one thing I'm, I think I'm really proud of is that my, my children can say, Hey mom, this is really harmful. This is really harmful. And instead of me saying, you know, cutting them off, becoming angry and cutting them off or becoming angry and saying, you know, just being in denial about things, I can say, Hey, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. That was, 
that was harmful to you. I wasn't always the best mother. So please, so thank you for telling me this. This is a behavior I will stop and I will learn how to communicate better. I will learn how to behave better. I can't change that, but I can do better now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something our parents have a really hard time with. Absolutely. Well, and I think our parents' generation, you know, whether I think they were steeped in a lot of shame from a lot of different sources. And because what they did instead was, was keep that perf- that perfect image out on the outside, that shame just festered on the inside to the point where, I mean, it's, it's literally eating many of our parents alive from the inside out. And so to hear the next generation who have begun to learn about shame at an earlier age where we're maybe not quite as steeped in that shame and we can recognize those patterns earlier because we're starting to heal and we're starting to like feel good about ourselves and be able to validate ourselves and hold ourselves and see our self-worth, we're better able to tolerate that from our kids where they tell us, you know, this was hurtful, this was harmful without immediately going into, I'm a bad mom or, you know, I'm a bad person. We don't immediately go there. We can hold space for whatever shame may come up because some still comes up. And at the same time, recognize, I'm so glad you felt safe enough to come and tell me that you're being harmed. And I'm so glad that you felt safe enough to come up and say, Hey, this makes me feel bad about myself so that we can talk about it and fix it. And it's that healing that we do with ourselves that allows us to be present and say, yeah, I haven't done everything perfectly and I have hurt you or I've put you in situations that have hurt you and I'm sorry about that and we're going to work on it together. I'm here with you. I'm here for as long as it takes. And I just think that our parents' generation, like that's that's such a foreign idea for so many of our parents' generation because no one ever talked about shame. Um it's something you keep silent and shame is one of those things that loves to multiply and grow whenever it's secret and silent and people are afraid of judgment. And I think there's, I'm really excited about our generation. I hate that we're the carriers of generational trauma and the ones that have to heal it. We have to be that sort of shield between our kids and all the crap that has happened before. But I love that we have the tools to give our kids a brighter future to give our kids a healthier sense of self and a healthier, uh, like healthier relationships with us. It effing sucks to be that person that has to do the work from both sides and has to like take the flack from our parents and be the person that does the work on ourselves and reparents ourselves and holds space for our kids. Like that's a big load. And I'm so grateful we have those tools. So yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and one thing I think I am learning right now is compassion for my, for my parents and, you know, their generation. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, you know, it does make me angry that the toxic behaviors that I have to deal with from a various set of parents, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, you know, having a family, there are more than one set of parents you have to heal from. Uh, so I'm learning to come out of that, that anger 
and have this compassion because they didn't have the tools that we have. Um, and it, it, there was so much shame involved and even utilizing those tools. So it was kind of this, you know, it just feels like a lose-lose situation for them of just constant, like there was no way out mm-hmm. of, of dealing with that, you know, because they also had to deal with traumas of their own and whether that, that was family traumas, um, boarding school traumas, residential schools, you know, it, it's so many things happened with our generation of parents And I'm trying to, I'm learning to have compassion for that. I'm learning that they did the best they could with what they had. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a sense of forgiveness on my part that needs to happen of letting that pain go Um, because it is a really heavy weight to have to carry. And you're right. It absolutely sucks that, you know, we have to grow up with all of this trauma that we've inherited, but we also have to take the action that nobody else has to stop that trauma from bleeding out onto our children. And it's, it's hard. You know, I, Uh, I spent the last five years writing um, a memoir, uh, mostly surrounding my brother's death. It's funny. It started out as a fictional book and, and, you know, it it evolved into various different uh, versions. I think I've done like seven revisions on it, but each time I wasn't ready to speak something. Mm -hmm. It was too hurtful or too painful. Um, I didn't want to be that vulnerable, you know? Mm -hmm. So as, as the years have, have gone by, as I've wrote this, um, seeing the growth of this manuscript and seeing these stories in black and white, on my computer screen, I wasn't ready at the beginning to include stories about my brother. It was just too painful. It was quite maddening because you, when he died, well-meaning church members had come up to us and said, well, he died. So that way you could come back to church. He died. So you guys could be a forever family again. And I, I remember hating that phrase because I hated that he had to die for that. That didn't seem like a good enough reason for him to die. Like, and I remember hating God for that. I remember questioning everything because of those statements made. I didn't think it was fair. Um, But I've also learned that so often people don't know what to say to a grieving person. I even don't know what to say to a grieving person, especially if it's 
somebody who has lost parents or somebody who has lost a child, because I haven't lost my parents. I haven't lost a child. I've lost a sibling. Um, so it's, I only know one kind of grief dealing with death, you know? And so it is, I, I know now as an adult, it's really tricky to find the right words to say. I remember those just weren't the words I needed to hear that my brother died so I could come back to church. And in writing this manuscript, this memoir, I realized the manipulation going on. I realized that my brother had been essentially taken hostage and used as this pawn for me to come back into this church to pay tithing to an organization that is already rich to sacrifice my time and energy for this organization instead of spending it on my family. And I started out writing this memoir as a member of the church. And I ended when I ended, I had, I think it was two years in, of writing that I had left, but I, I see the evolution in my family in writing that I see these happy, simple times of just growing up on the res of butchering sheep at my grandma's house of running along the sandstone walls you know, hunting lizards and snakes and, and herding sheep and eating yucca fruit, you know, all of these things, I realized that I wasn't always on the outside, that I, I was a res kid, whether I, I practiced traditional ceremonies or not, whether I spoke the Navajo language or not all of these experiences made up my own sense of what it was to be Navajo. And so it was almost like I regained a sense of self in writing this because I saw all of these things I was a part of. I saw all of the, I saw this community that I was always a part of. And so that, that has been really healing for me in just writing all of this out dealing with these feelings I haven't dealt with, you know, but also seeing therapy, a therapist. It's <laughs> all so useful. It's kind yeah. of all goes together. Yeah. <laughs> it all, it all helps in my healing and in finding joy, despite not having a relationship with my parents right now. Um, despite not knowing what the relationships are going to look like with other family members if they do choose to try to get us back into church. You know, I I have this belief that, you know, people should practice what they want to, live and let live. If my friends and family want to be members of the LDS church, that is completely fine. I'm not trying to persuade anyone to leave. Um, and I think the the only thing is I want, I still want 
you know, to be loved for who I am. I think all of us want that. I think we just want to be seen for who we are, loved and accepted for who we are, not for what we believe, not for how we vote, not for what church we go to, not for how we dress. We just want to be loved for who we are. Yeah, exactly. Uh, By the people who are most important in your life, Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that's one of the biggest uh, misconceptions that I'm afraid of, you know, but that is regularly taught in church. People who leave are going to try to get you to leave as as well. Mm -hmm. And so they see you almost as an enemy. And I don't want to be seen as an enemy because I'm not an enemy. And if you want to listen to my TikToks, then listen to them, but you don't have to scroll on block my TikToks. That's totally fine. (laughs) You know that, but I do, I do feel like I have every right to talk about what has hurt me, Mm -hmm. to talk about how I'm healing from religious trauma, to talk about the actual religious trauma. I feel like I have every right to do that. Um, just because I do that doesn't mean, you know, we, t- we take on this, these religions as if they were our entire identity, our entire self. So when somebody disagrees with the actual doctrine, we feel like that's a personal attack on us in mm-hmm. our belief system when really it's not. Nope. Well, and I think that that is super common amongst all high demand religions that we take on the religious doctrine. We take on the image of the church, whatever church that is, as our primary identity. I mean, if you had asked me six years ago who I was, I would have told you I'm Terry Hales. I'm a Mormon. And then probably I'm a, I'm a wife. I'm a mom. I'm a, all these things that weren't me and all those things that was one of the craziest things was to realize all those things I identified with Mm -hmm. could actually go away and I would not lose myself. I still exist. So if something were heaven forbid to happen to my kids or my husband, um, or my, my family of origin, I still exist. Terry still exists without the church, without any of those other religions. I I am here and there is an essence to me And I think we lose that a lot of times in high demand religion and we become enmeshed with the identity of the church. And it's hard to, to see that an attack on doctrine and on religious harm is not an attack of our person. It is an attack of this is harmful. Yeah. This is not okay. It's hurting people. Not you are bad and I don't like you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's the same as when our kids come to us and say, Hey, you did this thing, or you said these things and it hurt me. They're not saying, I don't like you. And I don't want you to be my mom anymore. They're saying, Hey, those words you said, those hurt. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I hope that, you know, it it can change more to that of an understanding of, you know, I see that you're hurt. And that doesn't make you any less worthy. That doesn't mean you have any less faith. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make you dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I do really appreciate 
the family members who have given me that space. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a mutual respect there. Um, I respect your decision to go to church and you respect my decision not to go. And we don't have to have these conversations of who's right and who's wrong. And I, so I really appreciate the one, the ones who have stayed with us and supported us, um, you know, just as a family. And I think when you grow up in a high demand religion, religion is your life. Mm -hmm. So it almost becomes like, well, if I'm not in the church, what do we talk about? What do we, you know, what is there to say? Who am I even? Mm -hmm. And we forget that there is so much outside of religion that makes us who we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what is scary for people because they've centered everything around religion that when somebody leaves, oh, I can't be friends with you anymore because I have no idea what we would even talk about. I don't know if you're going to try to persuade me to get out of church, you know, but I think, I think fear is what drives people to shun others when they do leave. Oh, absolutely. I'm just thankful for the ones who have stayed. Yeah. What do you do and how do you hold yourself and take care of yourself with the pain that comes from those that do leave? How have you like taken care of yourself whenever you've had family members or close friends decide, you know what, I can't really be a part of your life right now. So I don't, I don't know that we've had any like super close friends who have stopped being our friends, which is really good, which is really nice. I I appreciate that because I think we've lost a lot of acquaintances, people who weren't really our friends to begin with, mm-hmm. which makes culling easier. You know, you, you focus your attention on those who are there for you. And so it makes, it makes it easier to not have to put in effort where there is none being reciprocated, but for the, for the ones who have, um, who have distanced themselves, it is, it is painful. And there is a sense of loss and grief. And I've just allowed myself to feel that grief. There have been some close relationships that have completely transformed, which is really unfortunate. I don't think that they'll ever be the same again. And I've had to grieve those transitions, the changing of the relationships. We might still be talking, but it's changed. There's a definite change in there, you know? Um, And so I just allow myself to feel those feelings. I allow myself to be sad. I allow myself to say, you know what? This really, this really sucks. And, you know, it's not an ideal situation, but I can't control it and I can't change it. 
I can just, you know, control what happens in my own sphere. Whether people like those boundaries or not, it's not my responsibility to take care of their feelings, of how they feel about my boundaries. Um, so I think boundaries also are part of self-care. I've had to also distance myself just so I don't feel so hurt. I sometimes feel like I'm a turtle and I like just like retreat back into my shell because I am, I am a very introverted person. My husband's the extrovert and I usually just let him kind of take on the responsibility of entertaining people. Mm -hmm. And so, but I feel like I am like a turtle of when I deal with certain things, I just need to retreat, have some alone time reflect, cry, binge watch movies, you know, (laughs) and then I can be like, all right, all right, lady, get yourself back up. It's time to, you know, you have these little ones who depend on you and you deserve to be happy and let's go, let's go find some joy, you know? So I let myself, I, I feel like that is very helpful. Just allowing yourself to feel these feelings because for so long, you know, in high demand religion, feelings are positive and negative. Yep. You're wicked. If you're feeling negative feelings like anger and sadness and frustration, contention, You're righteous if you're feeling happy and joyful and content, you know, any, I mean, there's that scripture that even says wickedness was never happiness. (laughs) And so feeling sad or mad or bad with being wicked. Well, I'm doing something wrong. I must be wicked. I need to repent and I won't feel this way. And so we tend to just stuff all these feelings down and never really let ourselves feel, you know, grief isn't, isn't bad. It's normal. My brother didn't die to get us back into church. He died because people just die. We all are going to die. You know, grief is just part of the human experience being angry and mad and sad and happy and joyful and blissful. All of these things are just part of being human. And so it's a really power. It's really powerful for me to just allow myself to feel human. And I don't feel that I'm weak when I am sad or crying because I feel like I get all of these feelings out and I'm properly able to experience this sense of loss, this sense of sadness or hurt. And then I feel recharged, Mm -hmm. you know, refreshed, like everything has just been like wiped off the erase board and I can start again. I love how you describe that because I think for many of us that are used to stuffing that we're used to boxing up feelings or dissociating. Um, I think what we're worried about is that if we allow ourselves to feel that that feeling is never going to go away, 
And what actually happens is when we allow ourselves to feel our body goes through the natural process of processing the feeling, and then it dissipates so that we can then get on with the business of, like you said, feeling recharged and getting on with our life. And it's when we stuff those feelings that we we can't get on with life because we haven't allowed ourselves to process. And we that's when we get stuck is when we're trying so hard not to feel the grief and we're trying so hard not to feel the sadness. And when we can allow ourselves to sit with those feelings as difficult as it is, as uncomfortable it is, as it is, as painful as it is, if we can just let ourselves sit with it for that short time, it does dissipate. And then we get to go on with living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap up, cause I've kept you for forever. Cause I love talking to you. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up this episode? Um, just, you know, do what's right for you and your family have confidence in your ability to choose something, even if it's unorthodox, even if it's not what your parents want or your siblings want, or, you know, Mm -hmm. we all have this capability of knowing what's right for us or, you know, and our children have that capability to, to, to know what's right for them. And we just need to learn to be good listeners and hear them and not think that we know what's right for them, you know? Um, so just that, I mean, just to be good listeners for ourselves, for our children. I think that that is such important information because I think so often we're so used to not listening. It feels painful to sit and actively listen both to ourselves and to others um, because we are worried about those feelings coming up. If we do listen deeply. And I think as we learn to listen to ourselves, as we learn to allow ourselves to feel, we build a deep sense of self-trust and we recover our identities regardless of where those identities come from. Like what you know, what we feel we are and who we feel we are and what we feel rooted to. Um, It's that process of listening to ourselves and allowing our emotions that allows us to peel off the layers, like you said, Mm -hmm. of false identities and shame that's been put on us. And, you know, all of these expectations maybe that were never our own, they belong to someone else and to peel those things off and allow us to get to the heart of who we really are and to really love and accept that person, which also in turn allows us to really love and accept those around us, our, our kids and our spouses and our partners and, um, and even our parents, even if they aren't capable or aren't willing of healing, aren't willing to heal because it just feels too scary. Kind of like what you were talking about when you were writing your book, there were things you were just not ready to face yet. And each time you would revise more would come out allowing yourself to do that. I think also allows other people to do that and realize that they're on their own timeline and will heal in their own time frame. And us healing automatically changes our relationships with others because we change our half of the equation. And sometimes it changes in painful ways first because they don't want to have that responsibility of having to look at themselves and create healthy boundaries and accept healthy boundaries and talk about feelings. But other times, you know, 
it allows them to expand and grow and create healthy spaces for themselves and with us. And that's, I think, our hope for all of our close relationships, the people we care about the most. So, yeah. Well, and I think it's, it. what makes it so scary is that we feel like we're all alone in it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this memoir is so other, especially other indigenous people could read it and say, oh, I feel, I feel like that too. I'm not alone in this. Mm-hmm. And not just indigenous people, but like just every everywhere. I I kind of want to get rid of this ideology that reservation people or native people, indigenous people are so different than you or me, or you know, just there there's always this separation. Um and so. I just really want people to read it and, and feel like, Hey, I, they're not so different. They're not what I learned in history in my history classes. And they're just like, they're just like us. And, you know, we're, we're all suffering through these same issues mm-hmm. and dealing with them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Well, and I feel like we learn so much from one another. Whenever I get close to you and I hear your story, not only do I get to know you better and embrace you better. And I think as we do that with, you know, whole groups of people, we, we see ourselves in one another. And I think that's really healthy, but then we more clearly see ourselves as well. So hearing your story helps me see myself better and it helps me see you better and I can't help but think that that's going to help us heal our world who like our world is immersed in so much trauma. And I think the closer we can get to one another, the more I can hear you, the more you can hear me, just the better, the better we're able to fix things together. And we don't feel like we're like separated. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you so much. I've taken so much of your time. Thank you so much for coming and speaking to the listeners. So excited for your book to come out. I know it is in the review process right now. What do you want to tell people about your book and where can they find you on social media? Um, so they can find me on TikTok under Monica Crowfoot or Instagram under Monica Crowfoot. And my book is, yeah, just in the agenting process. Um, so all these revisions finally submitting. Um, so I'll, I'll keep updates on my book on Instagram and TikTok. And I will make an announcement on my social media too. As you make announcements on yours, I'll just like put them on my story and be like, go look. Thanks. No, you're so welcome because honestly, you've changed my life over the last year, the information, the love, the, um, just the, the passion that you put into everything you put out there and your sense of humor. I mean, come on, like there are times that I'm having a rough day and like, you'll put out a great TikTok, and I'm like, it's all going to be all right. I love that. So I appreciate you. And I honestly, if you're not following her, go follow her right now. And we'll just make sure that whenever your book comes out, that we all go and snatch it up because I know it's going to be amazing. Likewise. I am so happy our paths have crossed. Me too. 
Me too. And hopefully this won't be our last conversation no, because <laughs> I feel like I'm meeting a long lost friend and yeah. I wish I lived near you in Canada so we could actually like <laughs> hang out in person. Yeah. So I'm always like, that's, that's my person. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. When you're outside in your big parka in the snow, like it's freezing cold. I'm like, that's my person. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you again. And um, yeah, everybody, if you're listening, please go and show her some love on her social media pages. Follow all of her stuff. So much good learning there, like tons of learning. Um, I have to go back and read things and sit with them and then reread them and sit with them. So lots of work to do over there, but also lots of good times, lots of laughs and just being in Monica's presence. Um, it's just a ray of sunshine. It honestly is whether you're having a happy day or a sad day, it just feels so real. And I love your realness. And I'm so grateful that other people are going to get to know you now. And, um, and I'm cheering for you with your book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That means so much to me. You're welcome. All right, everyone, we will see you next week. And uh, don't hesitate to drop questions or anything. And I'll make sure that Monica gets those if you have questions for her. And we'll just kind of do this whole, you know, social media thing where we answer questions and get conversations going. That's how we learn and grow. So we'll see you next week.